Welcome to Merkaba Chakras, where we talk Buddhism in the fifth dimension. A Buddha is someone who's awake within the matrix and co-creating with divinity as a soul having a human experience. Each enlightened episode is dedicated to help you level up the energy field of your Merkaba. You can manifest the parallel reality that fits the best version of you. This podcast is for entertainment purposes and does not necessarily reflect the views of the host or replace any medical or legal advice. Now, let's welcome your host, author Von Galt, and her guest. Welcome to another podcast episode of Merkaba Chakras. I'm your host, Vaughn Galt. And today we dive into what the Enneagram is about and how we can use this map of human personality development to attract the most loving, soulful relationships with those that we love. With co-author of the Enneagram Relationships and Intimacy, Ms. Susan Dion co-authored that book with Dr. David Daniels. But we have today Ms. Susan Dion to discuss it. So with that, Ms. Dion, welcome to Merkaba Chakras. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. Oh, thank you for taking the invitation. I do love to find new ways in order to understand Metatron's cube, otherwise known as your aura field, everyone. So um, we're going to get really into understanding Enneagrams, how it is as can be used as a tool to understand our personality and how to use that to live the best version of ourselves um, in this reality. And by doing so, we level up our frequency to match the highest version of reality that Metatron has been trying to get as many people through that path as possible. So um, before we get into those juicy details, please, Miss Dion, tell us how you even got into the Enneagram. Well, I tell you, it was really completely by accident, but probably by providence. I started working in an organization development firm back in year 2001, I think it was. And they were bringing in Dr. David Daniels of Stanford University to teach this thing called the Enneagram to the leadership development courses for CEOs. Mm. So I, I'm also a designer. So I was designing the PowerPoint and I thought, what is this symbol in the what on earth is this um, this system he's about to teach? But um, make a long story short, I was in the back of the room during the CEO training and David Daniels had tears in his eyes as he was teaching to these, I think there was 15 men. And he says, as you learn the Enneagram, you will change your level of compassion for other human beings. You know, so I ended up um, going on to certify as a teacher in the Enneagram. I couldn't learn enough. I was going through a very difficult divorce at the time. I didn't understand myself. I didn't understand what happened. I had a young little girl at my side that I wanted to make sure that um, I kept her out of harm's way in this divorce. And um, 
And that was the beginning of my journey. And what I found so fascinating about the Enneagram was it allowed me to assess myself. I actually had gone to a few different places. I went to the Women's Crisis Center for some therapy help. I went and got a therapist in London where I was living. And um, unfortunately, they they just weren't able to reach me and help me. And the Enneagram spoke to me immediately. I I felt the truth in it. I could see a pattern in me that like started to de-shame my experience of myself. And it, it gave me permission to look for things like a defense mechanism, like reactivity. I started learning psychological words. I started understanding personality design. I started to understand temperament. I started to understand anger and fear and distress. I, I started to understand relational dynamics. So all of this I learned through studying this thing called the Enneagram. And that's um, that's kind of how I, I got started and I got hooked for sure. Okay, so so the way the Enneagram got introduced to, to the world and you are teaching it um, and co-authored the book, The Enneagram, Relationships and Intimacy with Dr. David Daniels. Um, it came from an academic beginning through Stanford to kind of study your personality and almost kind of like uh, when they do personality and character charts, if you're a type A, if you're a type, you know, you know, th- those those four charts that they do in corporations for uh, people in leadership positions or just any role to understand how to work with different type of personalities in business. This was another way um academia had introduced to introduce yourself to how to work with your personality and other people's personalities so um that's interesting and then it got introduced into a corporate environment to be used and okay. and is is that it is, is it why how wide scale of use is it used in corporations to kind of help have have better client business relationships So I'm going to take you back. Let me give you guys a little bit of a history lesson here. So um, the Enneagram sort of came into being parts of it, different parts of it, long time ago. Um, Mm. Understanding of different temperamental designs uh, goes way back. And the Sufi culture seemed to have known a lot about it. Fast forward to the mid-1800s and a man named uh, Gurdjieff, who was a mystic. Uh, I think he's Turkish born. And he wanted to know how... Why am I here? Who am I? What makes me me? And he went on a quest and he was using and he had discovered the symbol from uh, some ancient scrolls and texts and writings and brotherhoods that had understood human energy, the different energy patterns of different personalities. And they started working with what they called a chief feature of particular personalities that gets in your way of being enlightened, that gets, that's an impediment to spiritual development. So they were working with that back in the early 1900s. And that got developed by several different people, a man named Rodney Collins, a man named Uspensky, who is tracking and writing for Gurdjieff. And then it came into the human potentialist movement and um, a couple of South American psychotherapists or therapists got a hold of it, one named Oscar Chazo. It's a very brilliant and interesting human being who put together 108 actually Enneagons, which was a very complex system of nine personalities and many, many different aspects of the response uh, system, the defense system, the talents and aptitudes 
And he ended up declaring that where he got his information about these enneagons and the system of personality, which kind of is archetypal, kind of ties to archetype study, uh, he said he channeled it from the archangel Metatron. Now, this is all third party that I've learned from my great teachers, including Helen Palmer and Dr. David Daniels. And then it got carried into the human potential movement in Berkeley in the 1970s, taught by a man named Claudio Naranjo, which was a psychotherapist who actually tied these personality enneagons and enneastructures to human pathology from the APA, right, to the DSM-5. That was critical work. Helen Palmer was in this study group in Berkeley, and she started teaching the Enneagram up in Berkeley at as something called the panel method of teaching the Enneagram, where she would sit people of all one Enneagram type that she had determined, and she would let them tell the audience about their interiority, and it was always right on. So you do not need to know the Enneagram to speak to your interior landscape, but the way we speak of the lexicon, our body language, the micro expressions of our face, tell us a lot about how we're temperamentally organized. And that's how the Enneagram is kind of, we sort of wear ourselves visibly. You know, we can, we can kind of see type a lot of times right on somebody in the way that we speak, the way we focus our attention, our, the way we prioritize life, the way we get injured, the way we defend so that's a little bit of history. Helen Palmer wrote the first real substantial book, and then it took off from there. Helen met David Daniels, who is a professor and clinical psychiatrist at Stanford University. And he was mesmerized by it because he was in private practice, taking notes, copious notes, as he was meeting with people individually. And here he meets the Enneagram, and he realizes that several of the notes he'd been taking about patterns he had recognized in individuals was already well understood in other brotherhoods and societies and mystical understandings. He was dumbfounded. It took him two years to bring the Enneagram to Stanford publicly. He says he was a closet Enneagram student um, and he risked his entire career to endorse it, um, to bring it from the, from the mystical world into the academic world. And that was um, greatly due and great gratitude we have for Dr. David Daniels for having done that. Yes, thank you, Dr. David Daniels. Now, um, you know, people need to get over, in my pers perspective, uh, the separation between metaphysics and um, known modern science, because psychology came from like the 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 the, the practices of hypnosis. And psychology, a lot of the roots come from Zen Buddhism because they were doing that and understanding that, along with um, a lot of other um, energy healing modalities pulled, extracted so far away um, from its source, used in modern medicine and our modern understanding of our uh your energy fields and how energy flows through our body. So um, I've had other episodes going over this um, this hard line that modern medicine and science wants to put in metaphysics and the more they learn the more they realize that it's all metaphysics and there really is no hard line it, so um so that's what I want. so I understand I understand and deep gratitude to Dr. David Daniels for um, really risking his professional reputation to basically bring something metaphysical out to the forefront that is used in corporations. Now, 
real quick um, background, because you mentioned Archangel Metatron, where that this information was channeled through. So for you viewers who have watched every episode and kind of caught up, and people who have Buddhist background um, and Hindu backgrounds that know some of these topics, this might be a review for you. For everybody else, I'm going to catch up. So Archangel Metatron, um, he's he's come through many different uh, traditions. And basically, he is, um, in Judaism, he's known as the right-hand scribe and assistant to source, God, consciousness, whatever you want to you put the label on that. At all overarching energy, um, he's he or is like the, the right hand assistant, and he's so far known as one of the only, if not few, but the only one that I'm familiar with, archangels that came down from um, those high levels of uh, spirit world dimensions to incarnate as a human being in this low reality density. And so it, when you think about it, like Yeshua, Buddha, Buddha the first Buddha, Sh- Shiva, they all in the human body, the most energy that anybody can hold in their body before they basically can't hold it in dense form anymore is a thousand. And that's according to the map of consciousness where from Dr. David R. Hawkins, which is a mental health doctor who's passed away. His life work was, was a map of consciousness along with leading the number one mental health hospital in New York. But that's what he found. And he found that the kinesiology um, archangels start at 50,000 in terms of energy levels. So going from 50,000 to less than 1,000 to incarnate as a human being is a huge drop. So he did a huge service to come in and find out what is this thing about humans and why is it so hard? So he can finally understand. And so because of that experience, according to um, a lot of the stories about um, Metatron incarnating as Enoch um, and also as Ezekiel, and he's also in Hindu um astrology vedic astrology in the charts of all of the the people all the way up to source he's in there second to below source so he is the right hand assistant according to vedic hindu astrology and philosophy so um what he's known for is teaching sacred geometry and in every time in eastern traditions even in judaism when you come across Metatron's cube and all the different forms of it, it is sacred geometry. And basically, sacred geometry is your energy field. Okay, so for the audience members who've read uh, Buddhist Mandala series, my book, and many others who talk about sacred geometry, there's so many ways that we can understand sacred geometry, whether it's your Merkaba, your Sri Yantra, your Yin Yang, um, your Whirling Log in Native American, your Mandala in Buddhism, your Enneagram is, is another way to introduce it. We're all talking about the same thing, and it is all religions have talked about it. It is your energy field. Your energy field has a frequency. It has a consciousness. You are the wielder of your energy field. The higher your consciousness, the higher version of reality you experience. And as an effect, you you can't help but exude a high energy that affects everyone else and the reality around you, 
not because of you, but because now you're a clear channel and more of that light and love from source beaming from within you is now transmitted through because it's less it's just just a higher channel a clearer channel so um not to get too far into that but that was where very well explained by dr david r hawkins in his lifetime about the consciousness field of human beings and how um the higher you are the more non-physical you become and the more you raise into higher versions of reality so that's a short background about Archangel Metatron for people who are like, who is Metatron? Um, the the other thing is um this sounds a lot these enneagrams, Suzanne, sounds a lot like the Ninandas in Buddhism. You ever heard about the Ninandas? I have not. Okay. Okay. Actually, you know what? Let me go and get my um my uh mandala. I actually have my mandala and my husband's mandala image by semantics soundmadevisible.com and i'll explain the nanandas and let's let's see if uh the way that corporations are looking at enneagrams almost mirror and we're 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 using much of the same kind of um tools but in a different way so hold on just a moment resume okay so um let me explain the nanandas in buddhism and this is this has been passed on from Hinduism that goes back, according to some Hindu scholars, up to 25, 27,000 years ago. Um, but anyway, so there's this website called Sound Made Visible with engineers that created uh, a way to image voice, to image uh, what your voice DNA looks like. And they can image pretty much the sound of anything. So I sent my picture or my name Vaughn with my voice saying my name Vaughn. And this is what Vaughn looks like. Okay. This is what Vaughn looks like. You see those little lions on the top of the spokes? Yeah. Okay. okay. And there's eight spokes. Eight spokes. So anyways, eight spokes. So my personality um, according to um, the frequency, like if my if I if I incarnate something else, my soul is the same energy. It's the same pattern. You can you can you can take my voice or any voice and then put it into a semantics, and it will have the same mandala. That's what my energy looks like. Two dimensional. It'll have the same mandala whether I am in this body, in that body, in any body. It's the same soul. That's how Buddhists monks know when they're talking to somebody that they, they they make sure that they're talking to the right frequency because everybody has a unique voice dna so anyways with mine we have this thing called anandas so which tell you what you're working on in this lifetime so i have eight and i have the lion heads on the eight i'm working on teaching the four noble truths and the eightfold path of consciousness <laughs> so, I'm teaching um, Buddhism. So anyways, in, that's my chart. So go figure. This is my husband. This is his voice. Okay. All right. And um, there's, there's even more trumpets on the side. And you can kind of, if you focus and you can kind of see the lion's heads. Yeah. Okay. He has 12 Nanandas, 12 spokes. And according to Buddhism, 12 spokes is working on understanding um, 
how if you change the environment and you change aspects in the environment, you change the uh, the stage, and then it will direct you to a certain outcome or a certain journey. So, and and he, that he's very analytical uh, in that way. That's constantly what he's doing for work is looking at. Um, in finances, he works. He works for uh, Boeing here, and he's always looking at finances of, of projects. Well, if you change this aspect, then you're going to get this. If you change this aspect, you're going to get that. Constantly, and he's always constantly like when we're looking at around for different things. Um, he's he's looking at all the potentialities and trying to pick the best pathway. So that's what he's working on. That's what his personality is working on. So that's the Nanandas in short. I kind of cover it a little bit in detail um, in the book Buddhist Mandalas. So that's an ancient form of understanding personality and what you're charted to work on in this lifetime or whatever lifetimes uh, it takes you to work on those. But how from coming from Buddhism and the Nanandas in your mandala, your Merkaba, etc., how do how does it relate to the Enneagram? So can you explain exactly what is the Enneagram and how does it help us to achieve the best version of ourselves? Beautiful. Well, the, the Enneagram is also based on sacred geometry. It's pointing at nine temperaments, basically. It's a Ennea means nine in Greek. Grandma means drawing. It's a nine-pointed geometric drawing. These nine Enneagram types, nine temperaments make up the collective of humanity. Each one of these temperaments contributes a particular talent, gift, purpose to the evolution and survival of the species. So there's a circle around the Enneagram. There's an outside circle, which is the law of one. It is the law of unity and oneness and wholeness. We are whole actually as creatures, but we are actually whole as a species with these nine individual contributory patterns of people. We are whole as an organism. That's how I like to look at it. Mm -hmm. We have the law of three and the law of seven, which contributes to understanding the flow of energy, the law of change, the law of transformation, the law of uh, attachment and separation, laws of power and rejection, laws of idealism and frustration so those are that's called the harmony triads but they make up the object relations of people or the world view of different kinds of people mm. so there's a little bit about the overview of the system itself and what is it it's the way that i am architecturally designed from the inside out they used to think that you were born a totally blank slate as a human being. Give me your child and I'll turn them into whatever you want them to be by the time they're eight years old. Well, they realized that that was completely impossible, that, oh my God, there's somebody in there. And that somebody in there is already designed. We come in with a design, a purpose. Our central nervous system is already wired when we meet our parents. Now it's not finished by any stretch. It's not complete, but it's wired with certain propensities and pathways and proclivities to organize a certain way to defend against threat, existential threat to my physical safety and the threat to my sense of self, the threat to my spiritual essence. 
the who I am and who I came to be. When that gets threatened, we'll form a defense pattern. We're going to protect that at all costs. My essential self, which we call the holy ideas in the Enneagram, but my essential self is the unconditioned, untouched, raw spiritual data that I come in with that carries my purpose and my aptitudes and my talents and my gifts. Sometimes I call it the nine faces of God, these nine qualities that each human is carrying one of them to bring to right divine goodness, divine structure, divine organization, divine consciousness, vision, divine planning, divine um, love and beauty and connection. So we're all carrying a piece of this. And the Enneagram- So those are the, those are the nine qualities that you just listed? So I could list the nine holy ideas for you. So type one yeah. the holy idea is just perfectionism and everything. Type two, the holy idea is freedom, holy freedom, my free will to show up in the moment, in the right action at all times with consciousness. Type three is holy hope. This is an energy that brings hope and possibility and a kind of a motivational energy to pursue, to carry on, to support everything else. Type four is holy origin. I know my true face, the ability to consciously connect with self and connect with all others. Type five is holy omniscience, that we know all there is to know that there is, that we, are, we come imbued with the wisdom that we need. Type six, holy faith, to trust in what we cannot see, that we are supported, that there's a divine holding pattern, that there's divine love, that there's divine support, that there's divine order behind us, that we don't have to do it all, that there's something to lean into here. Type seven is called holy work. And this is, this is the divine principle of coming here to gain, to do the work of emotional and consciousness sobriety, to learn who I am, to study my defense system, to, to study my trauma, to release myself from the obstacles to spiritual ascension, to do that work while I'm embodied. As my soul is trying itself out down here, what works, what doesn't, I'm, I'm, I'm given a life to do this work, to try myself out down here and to elevate my frequency. Okay. Holy truth. And in truth, there is safety. In truth, there is authenticity. In truth, there is love. Truth holds everything in proper alignment and proper order. And then nine, type nine is holy love, unconditional love. That love is what the frequency that we all desire with every part of our being. I think it's what, I personally think it's what manifested the whole cosmos. Mm -hmm. It's this love frequency. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's like gold to the jewelry market. You know, it's just so valuable that when we stand outside of love as a human being, it causes an inordinate amount of torture. When we are not included in loving experiences, when we are not loved by the two people that brought us into this world, it causes a pain so great. It creates murder. It creates personality disorder. It creates a lot of problems. Okay. So, um, so what, so I have some questions about that. So first, let's 
let's talk about the spiritual ascension because you had mentioned that when you harness, when you start working on yourself and raising your frequency and using the Enneagram as a tool in which to understand yourself, it will help you um, break down some of the issues in life that are holding down your frequency that's, you know, contributing to that lack of love that's holding down your frequency and kind of preventing your spiritual growth because spiritual growth is going to raise your frequency and you're going to ascend your or you know level up your your frequency that's how ascension is ascending up the level of frequency you know bringing in more light harnessing more light you know being lighter bringing more energy in your merkaba in your energy field so that, that that's 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 the whole point of the whole game but but so how is the Enneagram used to attract the most beneficial version of our relationships, careers, and overall health? Because all these different areas challenge that lack of love, that, you know, challenge us. And not everybody is going to come in with a perfect slate with the lottery parents that love you and the career that just gives you everything on a silver platter. You know, that there's some, there's some thorns you know, in these different relationships. So can you explain how we can use the Enneagram to build healthier relationships, no matter the cards we're handed? I love, I love that you said that. And let me start with a macro view and then I'm going to go detail. The macro view of the Enneagram is first of all, we all come here. We're trying to have a satisfying life. We've got two key roles when we get here. The first is survival. We have to survive. We are wired in three-dimensional density to survive. And that means my body knows how to survive. And the second thing, my essential self has to survive. So that's first, survival primary. How I'm going to offer myself up to be lovable, lovable enough, a lot of energy goes into what makes me lovable, what makes me worthy, what makes me desirable what makes me valuable and how do i decide what that is well i'm not going to pick random attributes out of the sky i i haven't i have a connection to my essential soul i kind of know like you said i'm the same energy in every lifetime that really has touched me because we go in here and i i kind of know some of the gifts i have i i kind of know that i can take chaos and turn it into structure it's something that's easy for me it's kind of i have a way of translating the world and making it look better or improve it or fix it i have these kind of talents and I, I have a talent of working really hard until i get it and i won't give up and i have a talent for just being really dutiful and responsible so i pull from my essential self what i think makes me worthy and valuable and then I start organizing around presenting that to the world. I show mommy, I show daddy. It's what I'm doing when I'm really tiny. This doesn't necessarily come from our parents. What I know to be in me, I want to put it forward. So that's the piece of me that's critical to my survival because I've got to get love down here or I'm going to be a real mess. What if nobody gives you love? What do you do to make yourself better? The second thing I have to do is defend. I have to ward off threats. This is the second thing that I use a lot of life force to do. Mm -hmm. So yes, I got to ward off threat, meaning a dog starts chasing me, he's going to bite me. I know my body will immediately make me run. So we all know about Mm -hmm. that kind of threat. But there's also threat to my sense of self. When I go to my mother and I show her this little drawing I did, and I I happen to be as a child really good at drawing, and she's 
I'm so tired of looking at your stupid drawings. <gasps> so that's going to cause a contraction. I'm going to form a defense around that. Now, the kind of defense I form goes right alongside the strengths and gift in my Enneagram temperament. So I have a strength in reorganizing it and telling myself how I'm going to improve. I immediately go to, I got to improve it. And that's my defense. I put my energy there. And the other defense is I won't show anybody again. I'll withdraw. That's another part of me. So how mm. we form that system is part of the gift. Now, let me show you this. We have something. In, so we've got nine Enneagram types, nine temperaments that have divine purpose, divine spirit, divine energies. And we have the level of health of each one of these temperaments. So we've got nine temperaments and then we have how healthy it is and spiritually ascended it is and how high the frequency is, how response flexible I am, how mm -hmm. open hearted I am, how thoughtful I am, how gentle I am, how receptive or how defended, contracted, resistant, terrified, how abused was I? So we might have two Enneagram type ones standing side by side. This one won the lottery and came in with these beautiful nurturing parents who let that child potentiate in its fullest form of its type one temperament. And then we got this little type one who was criticized and ridiculed and beaten and the dad was violent. And so here we, here we are, we come in with our essential self unconditioned, ready to offer its gifts and purpose to the world. And then we get put on a feeding schedule. Nobody comes and we're screaming and crying. We're terrified in the middle of the night. And then, oh my gosh, and daddy's a drinker. And he comes in screaming at my mother. My mother is so stressed and I just start crying for hours. And then every time I come home from school, there's nobody home and I'm so alone and I'm so afraid and nobody's making me dinner and I don't feel like anybody cares. And nobody ever asked me how I feel. As a matter of fact, in my family, feelings cannot be talked about. I'm shut down and humiliated when I'm crying. And so by the time we hit adulthood, my type one, type three, type nine, type four, type eight might look like that. Let me ask you something about that. But we don't know this has happened to us. Yeah, yeah, because we're just responding. Many people are just responding. They're just reacting. So let me ask you something about that. Regardless of the, the lot you're given in life, and that, that's debatable in Buddhism about your pre-life plan and your your what you chart for yourself um where if your parents or your culture or your society or whatever your env environment is not giving you those life skills to be able to handle and manage these incidents in your life that could be traumatizing um, and could build up into a personality that um in the you know as you become an adult will not be so conducive to attracting and maintaining successful relationships in your personal life in your career and how you handle stress at work etc it goes on and on and on because it doesn't happen overnight we build on these these uh characteristics and then we try to like make them better if they work for us or try to unpack them and then work them out of our system so, to, so we can work out those bad habits so what can people do to attain the life skills to handle this stuff so they don't turn into that piece of paper so let's say so here's here that we don't know this happened to us we're just surviving and we're using whatever is still working in us so what you said is so true there's a lot of developmental developmental arrest here there's a lot of neurons and pathways that might not have grown 
there's a lot of them that weren't developed, that were arrested, that had to be stopped just to save myself. And then we try to get into an adult life and we can't handle stress. We can't take feedback from a boss. We can't show up every day at the same time because we can't wake up because we're doing drugs at night because, and I've worked in the prison system with Enneagram Prison Project for many years. And God bless the souls behind those walls because you ask them what kind of parenting environment they had and you hear stories my imagination couldn't even have come up with. And we expect them to turn 18 and have a fabulous, successful life. It's mm-hmm. not going to happen because, you know, you say, hi, you know, why were you late? I wasn't late. Next thing you know, their arousal system is shot because they can't respond with anything but a low density high defensive frequency, right? So you come into the Enneagram class and you start learning, go, oh, wait a minute. Oh, a defense mechanism. What is that? Oh, wait a minute. Compassion? Attunement? Oh my God, I never had attunement. My my mother never cared about how I felt. Never even asked me. So what happens is you start doing this deconstruction work. You're like, I'm a type three on the Enneagram and my image I put so much energy into creating an image of me, but sometimes it doesn't even feel like real me. Oh, that's what I'm doing because I'm talented with, with trying to create a better version of myself. And oh my God, and I'm, in, I'm a type eight and I see things before I even think about it because I, I'm direct and I want the truth and I push people to give me the truth and oh, that's what I'm doing. And this is what happens. We start self-awareness processes. We start observing Oh my gosh, every time my husband asks me where I was, I get completely angry. I feel like he's trying to control me. Oh, maybe he just cared where I was. Wow, look at the reaction in my body to that question. And this takes years, guys, for most of us. For most of us, okay? This process is one realization, one deep breathing, one self-acceptance, self-allowance, somatic processing at a time to start deconstructing all of this, this feeling that I was never heard or loved or valued, which is so terrifying to be down here on the planet and feel I have no value, feel that I might be alone all my life that I can't belong. It's terrifying. So the Enneagram helps us deconstruct this in a very non-shaming way. So I'll tell you, before I learned the Enneagram, I'm a type one. You're so serious. Why are you always so serious? Why do you always have to take care of everything before we go out? Can't you be spontaneous? Can't you just, can't you just, can't you just, and you know, my gift is to be responsible and dutiful and and try to get things right. Even though I always feel like I could do it better. Always, always. But I was ashamed of the pieces of me that were so natural because I'm getting feedback from the world. I can't process I can't reconcile that. I'm feeling, oh my God, I'm not good enough. Oh my God, I got to try harder. This helped me own my essential qualities, own my gifts and my tendencies. And it also, and this is really important, it gave me permission to relax my gift that had become compulsive. So the compulsion to do it right, the compulsion to always be responsible, the compulsion to always improve and fix it. Sometimes I need to relax that 
and be more accepting. And the learning the Enneagram allowed me to start the acceptance and allowance process that gave me more response, response flexibility to accept myself better. And then when I offer myself up and say, can I tell you how you can improve? And they're like, no, I don't want to hear it. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> I can, I can pull back and I can hold my own gift without feeling ashamed. So that's yeah. I like that. I like that. You know, there's so many different ways to approach self-healing and raising your frequency through pretty much addressing those dense issues that hold down your energy field and manifest as issues in your body. Um, because they eventually that's the last resort is to manifest because you're not listening to anything else. But well, I'll tell you, this is energy expensive. Holding all of this back, defending, protecting, blaming, complaining, explaining is energy expensive. It drains our life force, right? And when you talk about getting to these higher frequencies, when we are able to open the heart, receive others, be totally present to another human being without all this agenda and defensiveness, we have way more energy. And it's right. vibrating at a higher frequency. So right. we feel better. We feel beautiful. We feel smart we feel safe we we feel contributory right so it's almost kind of like i mean it's it's we're going to do my enneagram because i know everybody's going well i want to see what this looks like but we're going to do mine an example so you know what to expect when you when you get one of these enneagrams done or when you learn how to do one of these enneagrams for yourself or for others so you'll see that in just a little bit but it seems like, you know, like when you go to a doctor and you're having an issue, you go get a diagnosis and then you and before they do anything, before they can recommend a series of therapies or medication or XXXX to kind of help you with whatever ailment that you came to a doctor for, they always do a diagnosis to see what they're working with. Okay. Well, we don't have most people unless you go into a psychologist, which that's debatable if that if psychological counseling is really helping people or not. Um, in a very quick manner, because not everybody has the resources to do that. But this seems like a very affordable way that everybody can attain to basically do a diagnosis on um, what they're working with in terms of their character. All right. So I'm pretty sure most people have never in their whole life had a diagnosis of their character, except for maybe kind of one of those... uh, analysis at work once in once in a while to see if you're a communicator or if you're a a type or a director or whatever which doesn't make a lot of sense when you're trying to work outside of work with everybody else and you don't know what your hang-ups are how you respond to things what kind of life skills this type of personality needs what times um, this one is missing etc cetera, etc cetera. so this sounds like a, um, di- a really good diagnosis tool and then once you get your diagnosis and you know what you're working with then as you p- start pursuing different experiences to manifest and experience in your life whether it's your career your relationship etc cetera, etc cetera, list goes on for what you want to put on your vision board then you at least know going into it what you have to work with Am, am, is, am I correct or you want to add something to that? So right on. This okay. is a self-assessment system. I can diagnose me. I can get to, to get to know me and I can heal. We are self-healing creatures. Mm-hmm. 
you know, for the most part. I mean, working in the prison system, I met one. I met one that I knew I wasn't going to be able to reach that was really, really, really injured. You know, the earlier we suffer trauma, the earlier in utero, first month, second month, that stuff is hard, right? Because we're preverbal. It's all implicit memory. But for the most of us, we really can heal a lot of this energy expensive contraction against life that really keeps our frequency low, low. And it's very painful to live like this. We don't trust, we can't give, we can't thrive, we can't communicate well, we are, we've got high arousal, right? We blame others, there's no accountability, we get really, really lost. Um, But I want to, I want to give you the, David Daniels and I came up with just three levels of developmental well-being, low, average, and high developmental well-being. How healthy is my personality? Meaning, here's one example. How often do I blame others? How often do I take accountability? That's one example, right? How often do I project onto others fears that I'm really holding? How often do I walk up to introduce myself to someone and in the back of my mind, I'm going, they'll never like me. How often is that kind of stuff going on? Mm-hmm. Of thoughts do I have? How many? How often do I attack myself negatively? How often do I hold myself back from showing up in life? How often do I feel no one will ever love me? How often am I attacking someone for something that I don't want them to find out I did? I mean, these are all crazy, insidious stuff, right? So there's a lot of different levels of development hierarchies. Um, we've got one Enneagram master. She's got the self levels of self mastery. Uh, Russ Hudson and his Enneagram of Wisdom has the levels of development. Um, Carl Rogers had a system. Gurdjieff had the levels of man, levels of consciousness. So we've been trying to create some kind of way of diagnosing how dysfunctional we are. Actually, <laughs> That's kind of funny, but yeah, that's energy work. <laughs> how hurting or how loving, how defended, how receptive. There's a lot of ways to look at it, but again, the more presence I can tolerate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They will be, right? Yeah. You know, uh, this, 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 what keeps coming into my mind is, uh, is this concept of forgiveness, which is to accept what happened to you, <clears throat> let go of the anger, learn from it, and then just release it and learn not to recreate um, because you've already learned that life lesson. And um, that's really just releasing old, old karma, old energy, old dads, whatever you want to put it, um, because those old issues that we hold on to, whether it's in this lifetime from childhood issues or adult issues or from past lifetimes that we've carried on to this lifetime, if you're into past life regression and reincarnation, which many Buddhists are, um, we know our hangups from different lifetimes that are repeating <laughs> If you're working on your energy and spiritual development, but yeah, yeah. Right. So anyways, um, this is a a really good, uh, non intrusive platonic way to introduce a tool in which you can do that. Some of that consciousness cleanup work, because when you do that consciousness cleanup work, you learn the life lesson. And when you do that, you not only, especially in metaphysics of Buddhism, you not only heal your physical body because the dense issue that's holding on to that pain in your physical body has been addressed, but you also heal your energy body, which is your aura field, your Merkaba, your, you know, your mandala, everything that all that sacred geometry that 
geometry that is your energy field, you heal those dense issues uh, that manifest in your energy body. And then because you are multidimensional as a soul having a human experience, you affect your soul in all the ethers of your existence. So all of a sudden, you may um, also just feel uh, better or a pick-me-up, which is kind of a really nice shot of love and out of nowhere. And it might be from you doing that work on yourself. And then you just felt it in another version of yourself or your present self healed the present self and your past self feels that instantly. So, you know, that, 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 we're gonna, that goes a little bit into metaphysics, but this, this forgiveness, this consciousness cleanup work, um, this learning the life lesson so you can grow and experience and create life uh, with kind of more clear intentions and knowing how to create much more consciously. Um, it really reverberates through the universe. I want to add to your forgiveness statement, and I want to start with something very practical. The first forgiveness is to forgive ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's not our fault. What happens, though, is we don't know that this happened. So many parents don't know they're hurting their children when they hurt their children. They're trying to do their best. Mm -hmm. Our parents have stuff from their childhood. They have unmet needs. They have the defense system. They have fear. They have stress. And a lot of their, their issues get passed on to us unknowingly or thinking they're being a great parent or doing something completely unintentionally, like they're too busy to speak to us when we need them. And then we're stuck with that terrible feeling and there's no reparation, as Marion, mm -hmm. my great teacher says, there's no reparation when a parent does something and they're not even aware they did it. So we're stuck having to defend on our own, right? And try to recover. So this is not our fault, but we turn 18 and everybody blames us. And sometimes even our parents, I don't know what happened to him. I gave him everything, but he's not mm. coping. He's in jail. He's on drugs. He won't talk to me. And we don't understand what's happened. And a lot of us, like about 99.999% blame ourselves because we don't know how to look back to understand how we were impacted. And most important things we can do first is forgive ourselves. I didn't do this to myself and it's not my fault. But also before we forgive the parent, we don't blame the parent, but we open up to discernment. Mm -hmm. That's a big lesson. Loyalty to the family is one of the number one reasons people don't heal. They're so afraid to look because they know their mother tried so hard. They know their dad tried his best, but he still did this to me. His drinking still hurt me. So I got to look at how I was impacted, knowing that I'm not blaming my parent. I'm holding them with love and light, but I need to understand what happened to my little temperament, my little sensitivities, my way of being in the world. And once I can see that clearly, then I can have compassion and forgiveness for them too. They, they did their best. They really did. They just didn't know how to do it better, right? So I just wanted to add that, that piece to- I love it ourselves to look honestly at what happened and not feel that we're blaming or accusing parents but we are looking clearly at the true and divine impact that happened so that we can we can do this mm -hmm. <laughs> i love that way right well let's do an example enneagram on myself on go so let's see so 
everybody, this is what to expect when you get one of these or when you learn how to do one of these for yourself or others. So, so go ahead. challenges with when you come in, across the Enneagram for the first time is, okay, what type am I? There's lots of different tests online. And I will say the tests are fun and they're a great way to start an inquiry process. I have not found them to be accurate. I, I, I will share that with you. Um, I've come out many different types, depending on the different tests. The self-assessment, looking at my own interiority, is the design of the Enneagram. We want each person to identify themselves. Now, that's a challenge because there's pieces of ourselves we can't see yet. So, for example, when I first looked at, and David Daniels does have one scientifically validated test, and it's a paragraph test. But the paragraphs have your gifts and your talents mixed with your shadow material. And if you don't know your shadow material, you're going to go, oh, that's me. Oh, oh, that's not me. Oh, that's me. Oh, no, that's not me. And so when I first looked at it um, as a type one, I saw everything about the type one was spot on except judgmentalness. Mm. And I'm like, I'm never judgmental. But what I didn't realize is I am very judgmental, but I thought it was being factual. So I didn't understand that my, that's right, that's wrong, that needs to be moved, that needs to be changed. I I just thought I was being honest. So I had to learn how that black and white thinking actually was my orientation. And I wasn't using the exact same word for it in myself. I called it truth. (laughs) And, And it's actually judgmentalness. So one of the best ways to actually determine your type is to get an Enneagram interview. And I personally love doing Enneagram interviews. I get to spend about an hour, an hour and a half with people through an interview process that I conduct. And you don't need to know the Enneagram at all to do the interview because what happens is your lexicon, your syntax, your micro expressions in your face, what you tend to focus your attention on, what you tend to value, how you see yourself actually is coming from your essential self. And it actually puts on display the Enneagram structure within which you're designed, which you're organized with. So I'm going to give you a little example of what an interview process would look like. And anybody who would like an interview, you can just jump on my website um, and and contact me and we'll schedule that with you. And it's SusanDion.com. So yes, please, please, please carry on. Okay, so... I'm going to ask you a series of questions. And the first thing that comes to mind is, is just, you know, feel free to blurt that out. There's no right or wrong answers. And often I'll ask you a secondary question because the Enneagram gets very confused with what behaviors, not the why. So Myers, mm-hmm. for those of you who have been in the corporate setting and they use typology and corporations a lot, they often use Myers-Briggs. Mm-hmm. Myers-Briggs very behavior oriented. And, you know, you're an INTJ or an ENFP or whatever, Um, but it's externally located. In the Enneagram, we realize that five different Enneagram types might make their bed in the morning, but for five different reasons. The reason is what points me to your essential design. And so when I ask you a secondary question, I'm like, why do you think that's important? Or why do you like to do that? Then I'll start getting more of an insight um, beyond just a behavior or pattern as to really why you think something's important. Okay. All right. So the first um, questions I always start are quite general. But if you describe three qualities about you that your friends love. 
Mm, um, fun. They always have fun around me. Even boring things are fun. <laughs> um, also, uh, I'm very uh, inquisitive. I like to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like to learn things that... Uh, I love metaphysics, so they're not the standard run of the mill. And so I will I will source out um, resources that are not standard in order to learn the skill. So I like to learn, um, kind of scholarly. And then the other thing is um, I am very loyal. I build very long, long relationships. I work on things. I make them better. I expand on them. You know, there's no short, no short relationships here. If it's short, it's not on my half. <laughs> so that's it. That's a, that's a three. Yeah. Okay. Beautiful. So I'm going to ask you, tell me about fun. Why is fun something that's important to you? What does that mean for you? Well, fun comes from spirit. And that's what we are doing is we're having an excursion. So if it's not fun, we're going to exit out of the game. Okay, beautiful. Thank you. And tell me, why, why do you like to source material that's not standard? What does that bring to you? Um, because in this reality and in Earth at this time, a lot of the, the, the knowledge um, that I found in advanced Buddhism it's been around for a very long time, but but not a lot of people know. So I like to see how other people understand different things. And oftentimes it's just the same truths, just uh, shown in a different manner or seen from a different way. So I like to under- understand um, and see all the different excursions and experiences that source will create for itself and experience through us. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I hope it answers that. And just in the time that I've been spending with you today, I can see that your mind sees, you can, I see this, I can see this is related to this. And I can see how this relates to this. You have a mind that very systems oriented, right? And you can see how things relate to other things and you're putting things together and seeing relationships. And I can see that in your, in the quickness in your thinking processes and your curiosities about how things relate to one another and how they affect one another so here's another question this is Mm -hmm. kind of a a juicy one what are three qualities that make it difficult about being you for you Mm, i don't make quick decisions okay Mm -hmm. okay now if i make a quick decision on something i've probably been thinking about it for quite some time and and i can i can expound expand on it so i don't make quick decisions very quickly um also, you, you said three weaknesses. Yeah, three struggles. Three, you about three weaknesses. Okay. To work on. Okay. So uh, the other thing is, I need to know when to quit. I, I am a little bit overachiever, and I try this way and that way to make things work, and I just need to know when to cut the cord. Like this, mm-hmm. this is not this is not conducive to the overall. So that that's something. Um, the other thing is the other weakness is, uh, just balance. Sometimes I have a tendency if I'm really passionate about something is to over 
emphasize on that and then make other things in my life in balance. So the challenge is always trying to find balance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Tell me why, why are decisions not quick for you? What's the process for you in making a decision? Um, well, I, I do make quick decisions if I've already have a lot of information, but it is basically lack of information. So I want to understand how, how, something is coming about first before I make a judgment call for myself. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Would you say that in, in decision-making you kind of project into the future to kind of see how something will turn out? Do you find yourself anticipating as a way of helping you understand what decision to make? Uh, no, because the future is unwritten and it can change at any time in a moment of consciousness changes. Um, I look I do my best to be open-minded and try not to put my own stubbornness and self-prejudice to different things so I can look and see other perspectives and see other material and then evaluate based off what I have and make the best decision off of that. Mm-hmm. Okay. And if anybody ever asks me why I decide on something, which most people never do because they know they're going to get a whole, whole lot of information that they probably don't want, they probably didn't realize. So most people never ask, well, why do you think that way? Because it makes them change their perspective because they didn't know. Do you ever find that you'd like to get other people's feedback in making decisions? Does that help you? Yes, I do ask for for different feedback. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And tell me about improving, working hard and staying with it and wanting to improve it and not letting it go early. Or not, um, or maybe overdoing it. What is that for you? What does that benefit for you? There's, uh, like again, there's discernment and balance. Uh, that's the con- That's the that's the struggle, mm-hmm. is to discern how much of this should I do, and how much should I let go and let the process happen and evolve on its own. So, because um, I'm not a control freak, you know. I know that there are certain things that are set in motion that have its own journey. So there's a balance to that. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you, I'm going to take a tangent now. I mean, in a regular interview, I'd probably spend more time just kind of teasing some of that out. But let me ask you this question. What are a couple of things you would never want someone to say about you? You say whatever you want. I really don't care. You're just saying it about yourself. So, is there anything that you would not want to be known for? You can know me for anything you want. It's really a projection of whatever what you know yourself for. I'm just a mirror to you. And why is it that you don't care what others might say or feel about you? Because we're all we're all unified and we're all interconnected. We're playing different facets of the same creator. Why why self-sabotage yourself when you understand that level of how creation is? There's all one. Yeah. So let me switch to another little area. How important is success in your career and uh, becoming someone in this life? Um, Well, obviously you want the basics. You want to be able to, you know, Take care of yourself, take care of your family, all that kind of stuff. But I don't really, you know, I know that it's already pre-planned 
some experiences, some hardline experiences that I am going to have, and I really much enjoy stepping into those experiences and having those deja vu moments. Those are one of my favorites, having those metaphysical deja vu, vu moments. But um, honestly, regardless of whether I become a billionaire or super famous or whatever the, the version of, of a metric of success is that people think this is a successful human, the most successful human is the one that radiates at the highest frequency of consciousness. Because whether you know they exist or not, they are influenced the whole. So it doesn't matter what other people think, how successful I am. Mm, thank you. And would you be, let me, let me reword that. Have you had the experience of, of just being so disappointed with the way things are seeing, you can see the ideal of whatever in front of you, but then it's so far from how it could have been. And you really suffer a feeling of disappointment. Yeah, there's some disappointment sometimes because you see the potential in, in things. But I do understand that if I love someone or I love humanity, I must love them enough to accept them in whatever level of consciousness and point in their journey because they are going to evolve at their own time, okay? So I love you enough to accept you for where you are in your development and allow you the space to journey through that. And then holding space for that without you personally feeling disappointed or having mm -hmm. felt disappointment in the past when someone- Oh, no. No, no. Yeah. I have, a, I have a little sister. She makes, she goes into one abusive relationship after another. And I don't, I'm just like, okay, I'll be here. <laughs> I'll, I'll just take her out to lunch and, you know, have fun, talk to her uh, when she's going through her not hard knocks, you know, just kind of be like, oh, we're there. And now my daughter kind of <laughs> is like another version of me. She gives her, her, um, her kitty sense advice, but she's learned to just kind of support and buffer and not really you know put the point the finger and point the blame and that kind of stuff because you're going to learn and you're gonna, you're going to learn you're going to hit your bottom you can eventually learn mm -hmm. so thank you so i just want to explain so the first part of the interview i'm i'm organizing around who do i have to be what are the qualities i bring to life mm -hmm. what are the talents i'm kind of leaning into the second part of the interview, and who can I not be, which is also um, where I will not let myself falter in my, like some people might say, I could never be lazy, or I will never let myself be dishonest, or it's, you know, everybody answers completely differently. So that gives us a sense of, of the externalized, idealized sense of self that I'm really trying to hold on to. That's the first part of the interview. Second part of the interview goes into getting triggered, getting reactive. And so my question will be, what triggers your buttons in a given day? What might create frustration or upset or even anger? What would trigger you? Well, I mean, obviously, if things, if things constantly go wrong, that that is uh, that could trigger like if, you, if your car breaks down and 
you know, your credit, your card doesn't work when you're going to the grocery store. So things like that kind of stuff, the constant chain of events go wrong. That's got, that can definitely trigger some frustration. Mm-hmm. But I also understand that's the universe saying you're not meant to go there. Find a different way. And I love how, I love how, and this is a talent to positively reframe that frustration into something better. This is yeah. a talent. That's a gift. A lot of the questions that you've have had so far revolve around the eagle. Yeah, because the formation of the, of the ego, I call it the sense of self, but it's a design. It comes from the essential me and then me that has to defend and protect itself once I land on this planet and meet my caregivers, meet my parents, right, meet my right. sisters, my bullies and my friends. And yeah, so that the ego is is an individuated process representation of the essence. And in a lot of ways, when we lose aspects and connection to essence, that ego is trying to mimic qualities of being that we know we have but it tries to manufacture them in different ways, sometimes compulsively to try to get it back. Right. To try to reconnect it. Yeah. Yeah. So the, 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 so there needs to be a balance between your ego, your higher self and the source within you. Well, look at, so before we start doing consciousness work, right. Here's my spirit, my essence, but the, my personality temperament, my ego, we don't realize that we can split them apart. And then all of a sudden you start doing this work and you step back and I can start observing the way the personality is operating. Mm. This separation of between my, my, now my spiritual me can start observing what this ego structure is doing. And that is life-changing. That first turn of awareness, that first, you just get that little space between my spiritual me and my third dimensional ego me. That Mm -hmm. changes everything and that becoming my own inner witness. And then I'll go, wow, why did I just yell at my mom? You know, oh, wow. Look at how I just started fidgeting around Mm -hmm. and we start observing all of the mechanisms. We're discharging rage. We're discharging frustration. We're discharging shame. We're hiding an authentic conversation we need to have. Like we start watching all of that mechanistic life that is very different from the spiritual, beautiful self back here that is whole. Right. So once you do the, um, so when people are learning any Enneagram through the courses or, or to get one themselves from one of um, these instructors, what does it look like? Do you have a chart example? So, yeah. So the Enneagram symbol, (laughs) So this is the, this is the, it's called the Enneagram of process. And this is the Enneagram of development. And you'll see there's lots of lines here. And those lines all mean something as the types, gifts and aptitudes lean into one another, as we can start developing aspects of ourselves that have been underdeveloped. So we use Mm -hmm. it to do that. And that's the Enneagram symbol, which is a sacred geometric symbol. And it's two dimensional here, but actually um, it's a sphere. It's a sphere and it's moving in space and it's turning and it's, um, it's your Merkaba. It is. It is the Merkaba. I've been learning today what Merkaba is. You guys. <laughs> it's your mandala people. It's your energy field. It's your chakras. It's your aura field. Another great tool within Metatron's uh, toolkit that's been given to 
some wonderful uh, messengers to use to help diagnose yourself and work on raising your frequency. Um, well, now with those interview questions that you asked me, are you able to come up with an Enneagram for me? So my interview or- process is about an hour and a half long, but I'm, I'm getting some indicators, some initial indicators um, of where some of the things you might be working with. And mm-hmm. my first suspicion is that you're one of the positive reframing types. So a type that has a gift in his personality to take whatever happens to it and reframe it into something purposeful, meaningful, positive, manageable. And I, and just in talking to you, I've seen that you have a a beautiful quality and that you can reframe some of the toughest stuff into something manageable or more beautiful Mm -hmm. or spiritual. And those there's three Enneagram types that, manage their emotions they regulate their emotions they cope with conflict and disappointment by positively reframing reorienting the perspective mm. it's two seven or nine and my suspic- two seven and nine okay my suspicion now two seven and nine there three of them have very different energetic mm. qualities your energy has got too much adrenaline and mm. Um, vibrancy and assertion in your energy to probably be a nine. Mm. So seven or type two would be the next two things I would be looking at. Are you located in type seven, which is uh, in the head center of intelligence in the Enneagram and type two is in the heart center of intelligence in the Enneagram. There's lots of different triadic relationships. Mm -hmm. But because of your go forward assertive energy, you have a lot of um, you're just you're just a stimulating, fascinating person. Like there's a lot of oh, thank you. Your being, and so um, seven or two um, is one of the next two types I would be looking at. So I would have okay. You- mine and mine and mine and heart, right? Mine and heart. Yeah, and the, uh-huh. and the sevens come to teach us about joy. And going around obstacles like water or jumping over them. Let's, hey, let's not get stuck in in darkness. Let's move toward the light. They come to do this for us. Sevens come with vision. They have a brain that can see how this relates to that and that relates to that. And they can put things together and they see the relationships between things. They have a very incredible kind of dynamically systemic brain. Option possibilities and let's try this and let's do that. And they, they really want to experience the potential of life's fullest offerings sevens come to teach us about half half glass full okay life from the positive and don't get mired in suffering and defenses and arguing let's just clean it up lift our spirits that's seven okay so so now nine is that more kind of like in the realm of spirit like spirit or... So nine is actually what's called gut center of intelligence. Nines, nines diffuse energy, mm. into, um, harmony, peace, and they regulate their emotions by numbing them out. Mm. So they repress. 
and they do not differentiate themselves from others. Nines come into the world with a sense of unconditional love, and they do this by not differentiating themselves from you. So they immediately, they have this quality of kind of merging with a target other. And merging means, I like chicken too. What do you want? And kind of, they sort of become another person. They sort of meld with someone else's life force. And in that connection, in that merging, they experience love. They experience safety and trust. They also know a lot about anger. Nines are in the anger triad on the Enneagram. Mm -hmm. And I, I find nines have an extraordinary wisdom about the separation that anger causes. It's mm -hmm. anger immediately causes a split. And there's nobody more sensitive to this than type nine. And type nines can hear anger in a tone of voice. Mm. In micro expressions on the face, they see it. And it is alarming to them because it causes a splitting from the merging connection two people have when we're completely safe with one another and anger doesn't fit there. That's nine. Mm. The energy is down lower and they've withdrawn. They don't really come toward you. They kind of, people have to go toward the nine. It's more like that. Mm. Portion in you. Right. Let me ask you this because you said this earlier that sometimes the Enneagram descriptions of people aren't a hundred percent. It might be like sort of some uh, some characters, some some aspects are like, yeah, like especially when you did yourself, you're like, yes, I'm that and that. I'm definitely not that. So how much of the um, it's kind of like you know when people read astrology on on people and they say well based off these astrology these are the characteristics of a leo well you could take that and you can also apply it to somebody in a different astro astrological chart and there's people in other uh, other um charts that have same characteristics as well and then a little bit they're kind of like a hybrid so how much of these uh personality types and diagnosis true to form i find the enneagram incredibly accurate mm. about the way my central nervous system is organized. The number one thing you want to look for when you're looking for the Enneagram is not traits, but your defense system, mm. the way you protect and then have adapted because we, we don't randomly choose how we're going to defend ourselves. The, the strongest part of us in our central nervous system is going to, is going to defend us. That's where you really see the type is in the adaptive strategy is in mm. how I organize my defense system. For example, some people, when their feelings are hurt, they come out fighting. They're going to change that person's opinion. They're going to confront somebody. They're going to, and another person whose feelings get hurt, their throat locks up, their heart locks up. They can't even speak. That's all happening at the body level. This tells us everything about your personality design, your type. Mm. Well, there's a third way to respond. If somebody says something that, that hurts you, you obviously defend yourself and say that that's, I don't feel that way. And you must be talking about yourself and just kind of let so them be, the let them so be. The yeah. So that's the fawning response. And so um, that response takes more consciousness oftentimes and the ability to contain the fight flight or freeze reflex. So in order to, mm override those three big defensive reflexes. We got to do mindfulness and consciousness where I can stay calm 
I can contain the pain in my heart or the pain in my throat or the wanting to lash out and say something mean. And I say, hey, I don't agree. That's the fawning response. And it takes more consciousness. It takes more containment to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, well, very fascinating. And I think a lot of people are going to have so much fun taking the courses and reading the book and trying some of this out on themselves and their friends. So let me ask you this. Do you have a last message for people who are interested in the Enneagram or not interested in Enneagram, but a last message to help everyone raise their frequency and ascend their energy level spiritually so that they can manifest and experience the highest version of themselves and reality. Absolutely. You know, we all came here to be our best self. And I love that you brought up in the beginning. It's really a tough lottery when we come into parents that have caused tremendous injury or a society that's a war zone or my gosh, you know, and you kind of think that's it. I'm damaged for life. And truthfully, Mm -hmm. we're self-healing creatures and we can take it into our own hands. I haven't found anything out there as practical to get started as the Enneagram system. So we can Mm -hmm. learn what happened to me, how I organized my defense, what gifts I have to offer so that I can live myself in my potential and have the most beautiful life possible. I personally don't think there's anything more exciting and more beautiful to be spending a lot of my life force energy on than this, because the more energy that I free up by elevating my frequency, by unraveling my trauma, by opening my heart, I've got all that energy that was expended holding all those contractions together. They're now available to me to use for my passions my calling and for me to, to use that, to serve others and to serve the world the way I came to do that. So I encourage you to, uh, to check out the Enneagram. I know it's a really weird name. It kind of sounds like Candygram or Mammogram. <laughs> it doesn't do it justice, but it, it is one of the most powerful self-empowering self-assessment, self-diagnosing healing tools I've ever witnessed or gotten to use. So well, Miss Suzanne Dion, I learned so much about the Enneagram and its benefits. And I thank you for an enjoyable discussion. So for more information about Suzanne Dion and her offerings, courses, and um, the book to get it for yourself, please visit the website, which is Suzanne with two N's, Dion.com is also in the show notes. And Thank you kindly for listening to another enlightening conversation. Until next time, blessings. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Merkaba Chakras, where we talk Buddhism in the fifth dimension. For more information about today's guest, please go to the show description. For more information about Vaughn's metaphysical work, please go to MerkabaChakras.com. The views expressed today are for entertainment purposes and do not necessarily reflect the views of the host or replace any medical or legal advice. Don't forget to subscribe for more interviews about the fifth dimension. Until we meet again, blessings.